The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. All right, friends, uh, why don't we stand and honor the Lord in the reading of his word. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you can... uh, Pick the black one in front of you underneath the seat and turn to page 811. We're looking at Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, and we're reading from uh, verse 1 through 17. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick. And at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things... He marveled at him and said, and the crowd, and turning to the crowd that followed him and said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And he drew near to the gate of the town. And behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bear, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Lord, uh, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all their surrounding country. You may be seated. This is the reading of the word of the Lord. I'd like to invite Chance Newingham up this morning. Chance will be uh, bringing the message for us. Many of you know Chance. Uh, If you don't know Chance, I really didn't prepare an introduction. Um, So (laughs) this is Chance. Um, Chance is a good friend, dear brother in Christ, uh, a careful reader of of God's Word, and uh, I'm looking forward uh, to this morning, Chance, and I know we'll all be be blessed. Thank you. Thanks. Well, good morning, church. Uh, As he said, I think my name is Chance. Um, I'm excited to share God's Word with you. Uh, Before we get there, though, I want to pray, uh, and then we'll jump into the Word together. So let's pray. God, we ask for humble spirits on our parts. 
we may encounter things in the Word that we question, we may encounter things in the Word that we don't understand, we may encounter things in the Word that we just flat out disagree with, yet we are called to approach with a spirit of humility so that we might learn who you are, we might learn your plan of salvation, and we might learn the call that you've placed on our lives. I pray that these things would be apparent in the text today as we study. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to start by bragging on my wife, Ginger, uh, just for a few minutes. So if, if you know her, you know that she's awesome. She's super kind. She's super sweet. She's very smart. She's very funny. She's beautiful. But most of all, she loves to ruin TV shows and movies for me. You see, part, part of the problem is she's, she's so smart and such a good writer, we'll be watching a, a TV show or a, a movie and, and a scene will happen and she'll like tap me on the shoulder or, or pause it and she'll say, that right there. And I'm like, what? And she's like, that, that's, that's like a preview. That's like a foreshadowing. The, the writers, they're going to totally tease that out later. And while I want to know that stuff, like I want to figure it out myself, right? Which I usually don't. And so... That could be why she does it. So m maybe like TV shows, movie, may maybe that's not your, your thing. I want to think about this idea of previewing for a couple minutes, right? Like, like that's what Ginger does when we're watching the show. She, she pauses it and she says, this is a preview, right? Something greater is going to come based on this. Maybe TV shows and movies aren't your thing, though. Maybe it's, maybe it's software, right? Like a new app for your TV or a new app for your phone. You're online and you read an article and there's a preview about it, and, and you look at that and you might see a little video, a preview of it, and you're like, oh, that looks really awesome. Like, I, I can't wait for that function to come out. That, that's going to be so helpful when that happens. Well, this past week I've been thinking about this idea of preview and how I think as, as human beings, we like previews, right? We like to see what is to come. Well, the text that we heard read this morning and that we're going to study together, I think totally fits into this category of preview. What we're going to see in this Gospel of Luke is a foreshadowing of what is to come. So, if you haven't turned there already, go ahead and do so. Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. As you're getting there, I just want to set the stage for you, remind you a little bit of the context so that we can properly understand the story. So, in the chapters directly before Luke 7, we see Jesus begin His ministry. Remember, He was teaching, He was preaching, He called His disciples, He did shocking miracles, and, and He had done so many awesome things in such a short amount of time. I think the people were asking themselves two questions. They had to be asking themselves these questions. And the two questions are this, who is this Jesus and what has He come to do? And in our text for this morning, chapter 7, we are going to see crystal clear answers to those questions. Who was Jesus? He was Lord of all. And why had He come? to show people that He was the Savior of the world. So let's jump into the first five verses here. If you remember kind of how I roll, we'll read a few verses, pause, talk about them, read a few verses, pause, talk about them. So let's look at the first five verses together. After He, Jesus, had finished all His sayings, His teachings, in the hearing of the people, He entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. 
When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him, Jesus, to come and heal the servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him. Talking about the centurion. The centurion is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built our synagogue. So let's pause here for a second and just make sure we're tracking together. So Jesus is outside of town. He's finished up a round of teaching, and he makes his way back into town. And as he does so, he's met by a group of people. We don't, we're not told how many, but he's met by a group of people that are called the elders of the Jews. And the text says that they were there not on their own behalf, but on the behalf of someone else, a centurion. Now, you may remember a centurion is just a, a Roman official, somebody who is in charge of other Roman soldiers. So these elders of the Jews, they're there on behalf of this centurion, and they say, Jesus, listen, our friend the centurion, he has a servant who is deathly ill. He is severely sick, and we want you to heal him. Now, it should be noted, hopefully you picked up on this, the elders of the Jews, they kind of painted a, an, uh, like an upstanding portrait of the centurion, right? They implied that he was deserving to have Jesus do this that he was a patriot, and that he was very generous, that he built their, their synagogue. Now, before we look at Jesus' response to this serious need, and it was, I want to break each one of these people groups down, or each one of the people, two people, and then a group of people, because I think we can learn some stuff from each one of the, the characters in this story. So, first one is the, the servant. I mean, it's pretty clear, right? We learn that this guy is not well. He is at death's door. In verse 3, we, we read the word heal. Well, that word can actually also be translated as save, like someone who is at death's door and they need help or they have no hope. This exact same story is told in Matthew 8, but we learn a new detail there. This servant is also paralyzed. So, this, this guy, he, he has nothing. And the centurion is begging Jesus through these elders of the Jews, will you make my servant well? So that's the first person. Second person is the centurion. I think we learn that he cares pretty deeply for his servant. And I think this rightly leads us to believe that he was probably a pretty decent guy, okay? And, and here's where I get that idea. Servants back then were typically considered property to be disposed of at will. Well, for him to actually care about this servant as a human being, as a person, I think it shows us that he had a compassionate heart. What's more, this centurion, he had to have some sort of faith in Jesus coming and doing a good thing, right? Because he sent these people to go and inquire. Third thing, third group is the group of people here, the elders of the Jews. They were insistent that this centurion was worthy and deserving of Jesus to come to his home. And remember, they had three pieces of evidence. They said, this guy's got power, okay, you should respect him. He's a nationalist and he's really charitable. Do, do you see how their view, the, the elders of the Jews, how their view is very horizontal, like they're thinking in earthly terms, you should be respecting this guy, this centurion, because of this, this, and this. You should be coming to his house. You should be willing to heal him because of these things. Well, keep that horizontal view in mind as we look at the next few verses here. Look at verse 6. And Jesus went with them. Jesus is like, okay, I'll go. When he was not far off from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him. So elders of the Jews went the first time. Now his friends have gone. Lord, do not trouble yourself, 
for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I, too, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes, and I say to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. So let's pause again. So here, Jesus, you know, put ourselves back in the story. Jesus is making his way to the centurion's home, and as he's on his way, people closer to the centurion, friends of the centurion, meet him, and they stop him. And they were there to relay a message on behalf of the centurion. They're like, okay, listen, Jesus, hear us out. Our boss, he doesn't feel worthy to have you come under his roof. So we're here on his behalf. Please, just say the word. And our boss, the centurion, knows that his servant will be healed. You can heal from afar. We know this. Say the word. Our boss knows what it's like to be in charge and, and have people do things for him. He knows that you are wholly in charge and that you can absolutely get things done, right? Now, I think we learn a couple more things about this centurion here that are relevant to this story, a couple new details. First off, I think we learn that this guy is a man of humility, right? He, he, he's saying, okay, I know that you have power, Jesus. I know you can do this. You don't have to come all, all of the way. I'm not worthy of this, so please just say the word. Second thing I think we, we learn, we can deduce this from the story, the centurion was probably a Gentile. He was probably an outsider. Where do we get that idea? In Jesus' day, Gentiles did not invite Jews into their home. That was like a social faux pas. You didn't do that. And Jews wouldn't go to Gentiles' homes. So for this guy to send some of his closest friends and stop Jesus on the way and say, hey, listen, I, I, don't, I don't want to put you in this awkward cultural situation, so I know you've got power. I know your reputation. Heal him, please. I want to dwell on this for a minute. Do you see how the centurion's view of self is like vertical here instead of horizontal? The elders of the Jews are like, look at this awesome thing that he did. Look at this thing. Look how generous he is. Look at the power that he possesses. And yet the centurion, when his closest friends are speaking on his behalf... They don't puff him up. They don't talk about all the reasons that he should be respected. They highlight his humility. I think there's a dose of humbleness here that we would do well to recognize. Finally, in verses 9 and 10, we see Jesus actually respond to the centurion's request. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. At who? The centurion. And turning to the crowd that followed him, he said, I tell you, he's speaking to all the people that are following him, not even in Israel have I found such faith. He's talking about faith like this centurion. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Now, th this is the part of the story that's bonkers, right? Like just the, 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 the part that I have the hardest time wrapping my mind around for a variety of reasons. The chief of them, though, is this, Jesus marveled. Have you ever thought about that before? Like, what does it take to shock the God of the universe? I mean, he, he wasn't really surprised. But what, what can happen to where the creator of all things steps back and says, ah, that was bold. That is great faith. Was it the centurion's generosity to, to give all the money to build this synagogue? No. 
Was it the, the chummy relationship that he somehow had with these elders of the Jews? No. Jesus marveled at this man's deep faith, trust, and humility. You know, Jesus said that phrase, in all of Israel, I've, I haven't encountered faith like this. I think that those people who were traveling with him probably would have had their feelings hurt when they heard those words. I mean, you think about it. They were Jews, right? They were God's chosen people, the covenant people, the faithful ones. And here Jesus tells them, actually, the greatest faith I've ever encountered, sorry guys, is from a Gentile. It's from somebody outside the faith. And I think this is a major hint. Here's one of the previews that we talked about, right? A preview of what's to come. I think this is a major preview to Jesus' listeners and to us that Jesus' life and ministry and salvation, it's not just available for the Jews. It's available to all people like you and me. And, and while that truth alone right there, like we could camp there for days and talk about it, how salvation is available for all, we can't forget how this story closed. There's another miracle, right? The centurion's servant was healed miraculously, supernaturally, unexplainably. He's healed by Jesus. You know, it's at this point in the text where we could rightly say, okay, like, wow, this is a lot. Let, let's stop here and, and let's talk about this. Let's, let's dwell here for a little while. Take a breath. Try and soak it all in. But, you know, the story in the next several verses, it is so complimentary of this first story that the text just begs that we read on. Look at verse 11. Soon afterward, he, Jesus, went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. So we move from, from one tragedy to the next, right? Sick servant, he was made well, but in the beginning the, the story was tragic. So we move from one tragedy to the next. So I, I want you to try and put yourselves in this ancient context just so you can understand the full gravity of this situation, okay? Not only would this grieving widow, she's lost her husband, not only would she have been lonely after the death of her son, his death would have ensured her poverty for the rest of her days. Remember, they didn't have Social Security, no retirement plans, no life insurance, no pension from her husband. One commentator said that with the death of this woman's son, quote, her life had ended, but her existence continued. That would be really dark. And so imagine with me, okay, imagine if we're, we're in that group of Jesus' followers and, and we walk into town and, you know, Jesus is our, our leader and we see this funeral procession. It's something that was very common back then. You would have seen it all the time. And so imagine, you know, we're leaning against the wall or leaning against a building and, and we see, the text says, a lot of people, all right? And we hear the flute players because there would have been professional flute players at a, a funeral like this. And we hear the wailers, people just screaming and crying out. What would we have done? The text tells us what Jesus is going to do, but what would we have done? What would you have done? I can tell you, for me, I, I, I probably would have just 
been petrified, like not knowing what to do. My, my heart would sink in my chest. I think some of us would probably shed a tear seeing this woman walking, knowing that she now has no hope, no provision. I think we would all utter with our lips or in our minds something like, oh my gosh, this is awful. Not Jesus, though. Look at verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, which is the structure that holds the coffin, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. It's, it's funny, you know, when my boys will get them up for school in the morning and they're a little disoriented, like, did this guy forget who his mom was for a minute? You know, Jesus like, there's your mom, just go, go, go over there. You know, in this, in this setting, Jesus could have just like rightfully and re- respectfully stepped aside and let this funeral go on, right? Did not, not get involved, not make a scene but he didn't do that. Without hesitation and without any indication of faith on this widow's part, he acted. That phrase, he had compassion on her, that that literally translates as one word in the Greek. It translates as guts. In his guts, Jesus had compassion. From the core of who he was, he's like, I've got to respond. I must help this woman. And so he said, do not weep. Have you thought about how cruel that phrase would be if it were spoken by any human being other than Jesus? How horrible that would be to say that to someone in a situation like that. You know, imagine if we were there again, we, we, we go back in that day and, and we see this, this woman and, and we want to help her, we want to care for her, we want to do something. And so we go up and, and we, it, basically we're saying, it's okay. Don't cry. I, I think that woman would lash out and, and she would say, what do you mean don't cry? What do you mean don't weep? I've lost everyone. My husband, gone. My son, gone. I have no one. I have no future. I have no hope. How dare you tell me not to cry? But those three words, do not weep, when spoken by Jesus, are infinitely more powerful than when spoken by us. Jesus' words weren't cruel because he had the ability to take her sadness and turn it into joy. And then he said, this is my favorite part of the story, young man, I say to you, arise. Arise. And this dead guy sits up and he begins to speak, and Jesus gives him back to his mom. This just gave me the chills. This guy was dead, right? He got his brain function back. He now had a pulse. He was breathing again. This was nothing short of a spectacular and breathtaking miracle that happened in front of tons of people. And look at how those people responded in the next two verses. Fear seized them all. I think another way to translate that that is people were freaking out. 
And they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him, Jesus, spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. I I love how they break out into praise here. They praise God because only God can do something this good and this miraculous. Notice they said two things, though, in response to what had happened. First, they said that Jesus was a great prophet. Here, I would argue that they're like half right. I mean, Jesus was a great prophet, but he was also the prophet sent on God's behalf, right? The next thing, though, they said that he was God had come to visit his people. I think they're fully right on that point, right? God visited his people through Jesus. One of Jesus's many names is Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. God had come to tabernacle with his people. And after all this has happened, the the story of what Jesus had done and the power that he possessed, the the text implies that it spread like wildfire, right? That that the people could not contain themselves. They had to go and tell what had happened. So we've we've got these two accounts here, and, and you can see some similarities. You know, in one of them, the guy is really sick, Jesus heals. The other one, the guy is dead, and Jesus heals him. What do we do with these stories? So, can we learn some lessons about arrogance and humility? I think that's possible, right? Elders of the Jews seem pretty arrogant. They thought that this guy's good works made him deserving of Jesus to do something, but then the guy was really humble. I, I think that's fair, right? We could, we could do that. Or can we learn about the importance of having faith and trust in God, in Christ? I, I think that's a fair point, right? The, the centurion had faith and trust in God. Maybe we could spend a few minutes talking about God's sovereignty, how God, through Christ, is Lord of all. Nothing is beyond His power. We could do that. But if you boil it down, what are these two stories about? This is where we come back full circle to my opening illustration. I believe these stories are a preview. I think they are here to serve as clues and pointers and previews of what is to come. In the first story, this guy was knocking on death's door, and Jesus restored him. In the second story, this man was dead, and Christ brought him back to life. That's power, and that power is only available through Jesus. Here's what I think it boils down to. Here's my main idea. What Jesus did with these men's bodies is a preview of what He can do with our souls. I think that's what these two stories are trying to communicate. Let let me paint a picture for you, okay? Those people who don't know Jesus, they are inescapably trapped in sin. Darkness is their friend. They are recklessly leaning into destruction. They warmly greet wickedness. And because of those ideas and more, they deserve death. And and as they live their lives, they are marching towards hell as if they're laying paralyzed in a bed or being carried in a coffin, and they don't care. Or they don't know. But praise be to God that Jesus stands over sinners and He says, I say to you, arise. 
He says, leave your life of sin. He says, you are a new creation. He says, the old has gone, the new has come. He says, I'm here to give you life here and now and to give you life eternally with the Father. You know, everybody here this morning, you are in one of two camps. You are either in the camp of the raised or the camp of the dead. If you're in the camp of the raised, Jesus has visited you and said, arise. He has taken away death. He has restored you to new life, and you are called to serve Him as Lord, have great faith in His power, and spread news about Him throughout your Judea, wherever that may be. If you're here this morning, though, and you are in the camp of the dead, what you need to know is, you don't have to stay there. You don't have to fear death. You can leave. He can heal you physically, taking away the power that death has, and spiritually. Life can be yours. Grace can be found. And that comes from trusting Him, having faith, and believing in the gospel. It comes when you believe His sacrificial death, you confess your sins, and you seek His forgiveness. Jesus then says, arise. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for your authority to vanquish sin. Help us to see with clarity the seriousness of our sin. Help us to see that we are lying in bed at death's door or that we have been dead for quite some time. And yet in both situations, you can say to us, Son, arise. Daughter, arise. May we see that you are here now in compassion and authority. In Jesus' name, amen.